Hi folks, small favour to ask you before we start the podcast. Uh, Shrapnel is brand new and needs people to tell others about it. So if you're listening, if you're enjoying, if you think this is a project worthwhile, uh, tell people, share it, whether it's on social media or telling word of mouth, that's how it's going to get around. You can also help by subscribing and leaving a review on your podcast app. It helps push it up the charts. That's how that algorithm works and therefore other people might actually see it and, and give it a go. I know the lads would really appreciate it. They're putting a lot of work into this, and I think it's going to be an excellent, excellent series. Um, we're delighted on the tortoise shack that the guys are involved. So please, if you can, again, like, share, review, and, and tell people word of mouth. That's what's going to help get Shrapnel a wider audience. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Sharpnell podcast. This is sort of just a, a get to know you session of, of what's going on in the last couple of days. I'm joined as always by my co-host Gareth Mulvenna. Hello Gareth. Hey Sam. So it's um, polling time again but not not the way we expected with elections. It's um, lucid poll which yeah. seems to um, come up every now and again to sort of flame the the debate on mainly on Twitter, to be to be honest, um, which isn't the best place to talk about anything, but people seem to have got carried away over the weekend by by the latest um, poll results, which I think one of the results came out that um, seven and ten nationalists agree with Michelle O'Neill that there was no alternative to the um, IRA's um, armed struggle. So I suppose from my perspective, it's easy to look at things in the year 2022 and sort of say yeah there's no alternative but at the time you know the proof was in the pudding there was an alternative we had John Hume and Jerry Fitt and people involved in the civil rights campaign so I think and that's probably one of the things we're trying to do here by having honest conversations about the past no matter what the hue is that the past was a dirty place we can't really just disnify it um and I, I see today that John Finucane's asked for an immediate border poll on Irish reunification based on, on, on the poll, um, which is quite legitimate, of course. Um, I wouldn't be critical of him for that. But, you know, it's it's difficult because I'm not entirely sure that 7 out of 10 nationalists across the whole of the North do support um, armed, the armed struggle. Um, I think so, I think also with these kind of things, Gareth, you're seven out of ten nationalists who are anonymous agreed with it. I mm-hmm. think if you ask people in a more human face to face kind of setting, that that number might be different. Um, the other thing is that's this week's poll. You know yourself. Next week we'll have another poll, another set of results, um, and yep. it might go the other way. Um, I think, as you said, it just fans the flames here that this week. So many want uh, United Ireland, and next week everybody will be happy being where they are. It'll just change. And the other thing about the Lucid poll, it covered so many evils this week. It covered um, support of the IRA. It covered which parties were getting more support. Not the UP have gone up according to this poll. So are they doing the right thing by not coming in the storming? How do we unpackage that uh, data? And then it also covered the cost of living increases. It's sort of a poll of of polls, really. Um, Without getting into the specifics, and as, as I said, next week we could have another poll, and it'll be entirely different. So, I tend not to focus on what the poll is, but I, I 
I do, I do sort of sometimes look with a with a dropped jaw at some of the responses that come in because it is just it is just a signal for the for the the, the fanatics on both sides to come out and start spewing the usual and, and and using it as a as a as a means and a doorway to start attacking other people. And I don't think the polls, along with other um, top rated t- radio shows, um, do a lot. <laughs> Sometimes to help this to calm this place down, they, they keep stirring the pot enough to keep it to keep it agitated and keep all of us on on edge. Um, and I think on the back of well, that, I mean, think, it, well, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, it, it just gives the lunatic fringe a license to go go full tilt, you know. Because my first instinct when I saw the results of of that poll was, you know, you're going to have people on one side saying, "Well, look, our our campaign was justified," um, and it gives more fuel to the historical revisionism um on the other hand and i've seen it myself it it gives a lot of well loyalists on twitter and again i'm I'm talking about twitter here it gives loyalists on twitter an excuse to say well look we were right all along these people supported um violence which i don't think is correct i don't think either of these narratives are correct and i think between these polls between some of the more controversial um sort of discourses in the media and the Twitter as a sort of melting pot for all these debates. I think it's very unhealthy for, for where we want to be in the future, no matter whether that's part of the union or part of a new Ireland, we're not going to get the, either of these places in, in good shape. If we keep debating the past the way we have done. Yeah. And I think it, I mean, I was about to cross over there onto the other issue that, I, that drew my attention at the weekend was the, the phone call, a recorded phone call message that somebody on Twitter that we all know, son, picked up on, and a foul and abusive and absolutely horrent language threatening the, the young son of, of somebody on Twitter because they didn't agree with their political views. I mean, it, this person is not the only person to suffer this kind of thing. There's been several people over the last couple of weeks, and as soon as they lift their their phone and start typing. They open themselves up to a floodgate of abuse. And I have no problem in people who want to debate political opinion or um, any other opinion, whether it be football <laughs> or, or the weather. But it's when we cross that line and we start attacking people personally and we start especially attacking their families. And we drag children into this. What is going on in people's heads when they feel that it is appropriate to to talk that way about somebody's child because they disagree with your point of view? You know, it it's... Twitter, Twitter can be an absolute cesspit, and believe me, I, I see the uh, the hypocrisy in, in what I'm saying. Considering I use Twitter, and we use it for promotion of this podcast, absolutely. But yeah. it is a double-edged sword, and so many times it has cut people badly. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. It's you know, people should be allowed to express their opinion without fear of threats or um, abuse or or threats of violence or. Particularly, I mean, the, the threat towards uh, the person we're talking about there um, was odious. Um, it was disgusting. And the same goes for threats against other individuals. I mean, we saw with Maria Cahill today and we've, we've talked about Joe Brawley as well. And, you know, these are people who, who are legitimately expressing their opinions and they should be allowed to do so. Now, I'm, I'm probably going to get a bit of pelter here, but I actually bought the paper yesterday to read Maria's piece um and I actually I bought a paper, yeah, because yeah. you know, can't can't rely on free media all the time. Can't read the Guardian for free all the time, <laughs> not pick up, you know, an actual physical copy. But look, I and again, look, I, I thought Maria's article 
first of all, came from a, a position of experience as somebody who volunteered with the FILA for a number of years. She's from West Belfast. She's from a, a staunchly Republican background. Um, you know, so I think her criticism is legitimate. And I have sympathy for what she was saying because basically the whole purpose of FILA in the aftermath of the killing of the two corporals was to rehabilitate the uh, image, the the um, the view of the people had of the people of West Belfast. And as you know, Sam, I've my partner's from West Belfast. I've got in-laws from West Belfast, and you know, I know people in West Belfast are decent. You know, it even seems crazy to have to to say that in the year twenty twenty two. But on the other hand, I don't think it does itself any favors by having the wolf tones. Um, now, I would never want to censor any artistic expression. I think if people want to go and see the wolf tones and don't want to sing these songs, that's that's fine. Now, the one, the one thing that's really interested me, and this is where I begin to feel the age that I am now, the whole kneecap thing's been really interesting because, yeah, I get it, they're young guys. And um, people have tried to make the analogy with the punk movement saying, look, these guys are just like, you know, the modern day version of punk. And it's all satire. First of all, I, I think they're crap. Secondly, their lyrics are just really, they're ambiguous at best. But also, as Maria said in the article, they highlight almost the worst the worst sort of um, characteristics of, of what people perceive young people to be like now. And, and the question I would ask is, I know another commentator made the point, and Maria cited it in her article, kneecap are just holding up a mirror to the society they live in well the question i would be asking is well why are they not questioning the politicians that claim to represent them because they should be doing better and i I, i'm not just um you know i'm not just saying that about west belfast i'm talking about our whole political system here you know we can complain about the society we live in but the politicians are the people who have to be held to account because they're the people who have to make the decisions for us and make society a better place. That's what they're elected to do. Yeah, and, and, and on the back of that, the politicians don't take power because they want to take power. They take power because we give them it. Um, and we can take it away again, and we don't. So ultimately, yes, the politicians are a fault here, but if we keep putting the same people in, we get the same results. Which I think timely brings Absolutely. us round to the subject of our podcast, who is a politician. Um He's a deputy leader of the Ulster Unionist Party and his name's Robbie Butler. So hope you enjoy the podcast that follows. Well, I'm going to start off, Robbie, by explaining your connection that I that I see within the, with the Loyalist circles. Um, although you're maybe perceived to be middle class and you're an Ulster Unionist, therefore the men in grey suits and the old terminology, um, your, your outset in life was an entirely different story. Um, you want to give me a bit of background on that? Yeah, sure, Sam. Um, thanks for the opportunity to come on, uh, I'm sure, yeah. So, uh, as you rightly said, I'm the, the deputy leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, and um, the perception around many circles is that the Ulster Unionist Party represented that middle class of unionism, or garden centre unionism, or uh, the, the, the nice comfortable side of unionism, and certainly was probably associated with those well-off, but um, I, I'm certainly not from that background. I am from a, a working class uh, unionist loyalist estate in Lisburn called Low Road. Um, part of it, it borders on Hilden. Um, but I also, before that, lived in Milltown Estate, um, just on the edge of Dariake. My dad is from 
when he was he actually grew up probably mostly in Tuckmona, but then his family moved to Spring Martin and Highfield, and that's where my dad's family still reside. And they spent a lot of time there as a as a young person. And my mum, my mum's family are again a working class from the countryside. Um, but certainly all of my life through school, through high school, um, I'm very proud of the roots where I come from. And and so when people talk about big house unionism and and, and things, I, I chuckle to myself because. I'm definitely not that guy. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I scraped my knees. I really did. I scraped my knees in and around the housing estates. I, I, you know, my mum and dad required um, uh, social security support for many of those years. I was, you know, the free school dinner as we had, you know, the, the grants in and around school uniforms and all of that stuff. So that's, that's where I come from. So I have a real perception of the working class, unionist, loyalist um, community. It's great to hear so what's the uh, difficulty, you know, we hear a lot about loyalist alienation and the alienation of the Protestant working class. And to me, having researched it for, you know, 20 odd years and engaged with people, it reminds me of something Michael Copeland said to me a number of years ago about, I mean, he talked about the Protestant middle class. When people become middle class in the Protestant community, there's a tendency then to sort of pull the ladder up behind them. Whereas you don't, well, he perceived that you didn't get that in the Catholic community to the same degree, what's your take on that being from that background and, and sort of having been upwardly mobile to, to a certain extent? Yeah, um, do you know something, Gareth, it was, it was something that um, in, the, in the fringes of my mind and that sort of conversation you have with yourself, for years I t- just tried to discuss that and it wasn't until I, I'd met Sam maybe in later years that, that that came to a deeper thought process. And that question in my head was, why would I not be comfortable calling myself a loyalist? And it was something I never was comfortable with. Uh, I, absolutely a unionist, uh, absolutely from a Protestant uh, evangelical Christian background. But the, the loyalism piece, I, I was asking myself, why would, why can I not be comfortable with that? Um, and when I, when I look perhaps on the Catholic nationalist side, I say, well, there's, there's, there's plenty of people who I perceive to be um, decent people who are comfortable with the terminology of calling themselves a Republican, for instance. Um, so... And, and Michael Copeland, as you said, uttered those words. And I, I think, and this is only my thinking, and maybe we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this, but it's evidenced in how the voting patterns, perhaps here, and I haven't bottomed this out, but you can see that, you know, in, in, in the uh, unionist voting side, parties like the PUP, the UDP, and so on, never really gained any traction in the wider unionist community because people were not comfortable voting for those who prescribed themselves to be a certain type of loyalist, not loyalist, but a certain type of loyalist. The same wasn't necessarily true um, uh, in, in, in the nationalist side in terms of how I perceived it. So, um, and obviously Sinn Féin being the most successful of those parties who, rep, who were the political wing of, of a prescribed organisation. Um, and there were more people in that community that were comfortable with it. Now, obviously, ideologically, there, there are two poles apart positions and maybe there's not a whole lot of psychology required to investigate that. But I, I'll be honest, I always found... Felt myself felt to be really quite cheated that I couldn't comfortably and still don't openly do it. Call myself a loyalist, um, and I felt and, and I have to be honest, I, I, for right or for wrong, kind of blame my own side for that too. Um, you know, I've grown up in and around housing estates where um, you knew who was connected, you knew who was in organisations, you knew whose dad was in an organisation, and so on, and they kind of cornered the market of loyalism. And for me, who I wasn't even close to, to joining anything. Um, 
I was I was more interested in my church and stuff to be fair, and I would give genuinely my faith a real um, hands up and heads up uh, for for that journey that I had. Um, but I, I've always and I look at it even today, and like I'm fifty years of age, and I'm looking at it and I'm going, well, um, to use an example, Nicola Mallon, uh, I've often said it was my favorite MLA to work with in Stormont. Not just from another side. I thought she was an excellent MLA. But she's a very confident, niceness Republican um, politician. I find that, I don't find that offensive at all. I find it fine. And I'm still saying to myself, why can't I just say, you know, back, I'm a unionist, loyalist politician, you know? Um, and it's, I suppose it's, it's, it's where I know to be or that feeling inside of where your own supporters, your own community is with, with the terminology like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's interesting. Just, just, I mean, don't want to go too far down that route, but when you say about the, your evangelical background and the sort of, I think, I remember doing a talk up at the wee uh, Shankill area social history group a few, well, about 10 years ago now, and I was talking about, you know, my background, my upbringing, um, having gone to the Catholic Church and this, that and the other, and showing some photographs of my great-grandfather, you know, who was killed in World War One, And it was... You know, the Shash group is a lot of elderly people. But they started having an argument among themselves at the end. It was good-natured. But they were saying, you see, the Catholics, they got it right because they had, a, like, a cohesive... It's part of the social fabric, the church. I suppose now, to a certain extent, you've got the GAA. So all those sort of differences between republicanism, nationalism, any contradictions with Catholicism, middle-class, working-class, can be subsumed into one sort of overall overarching political ideology and social ideology to a certain extent whereas it's protestantism by its very nature is about the individual you know if you don't like one church you'll move to another is is that where the weaknesses come in and the, and the class differences and also i'm detecting i don't know if shame's the right word but as you say why shouldn't you be able to say you're a loyalist i'm proud of it i think that's really interesting robbie yeah i um i think um so whether our so in terms of our our, our position in history, I mean we we are a a fluke of where we're born. You know where we're born determines very much what we're fed in all senses, and only a, a not only a few, but a, there comes a point in your life where you have to do an assessment of where you are and, and what you're going to be and so on. And, and I am genuinely a very very comfortable pro union person, a unionist, whatever you know, whatever terminology you want to be. Very very comfortable in my Northern Irish identity. You know, uh, I, I, that, that's something that I would love to see pushed to the. It's never been exercised from within either unionism, nationalism. Obviously, the last maybe get lump it in a little bit, but that loyalism piece. Um, I think there's a there's still a huge amount of work to, to be done on that because I think even in 2022, given that we're, we've moved on considerably from the days of the troubles and so on. And I don't know if there's a, maybe a wee bit of it because there are still elements still active in some in some forms. So if you look at the debates in and around the protocol and stuff at the minute, and some of the people who um, perhaps are, are seen to have influence in and around there and their association with organisations who should have left the scene long ago, um, and they're and they're referred to in the media as loyalists. It could be loyalists full stop. So. And, and it's politicians' faults as well, Gareth, that they haven't challenged that narrative and maybe been able to use it. 
And then, because if you use it and then own the language, then you will squeeze out that other piece and won't allow that ownership to remain. But that 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 has been allowed to be the case because it was the case, I, I think. But you are right. There, there is that element within the PEL community where if you don't like the church, you just start on it. Yeah, you go to one or you start one, you know, um, and it's and it's refer- It's all over the world, so it's yeah. but, but it's quite condensed here. We're really good at it in Northern Ireland, you know. <laughs> like we, we're like the cream of the crop of Protestants, you know. We we can really like, you know, if you look at any of the types of church, whether it's Methodist, Presbyterian, or, or whatever. There's there's ten different types of each, you know. Um, uh, and so when I got involved in politics without doing that full testimony piece, I really got involved to try and coalesce. Um, and see if, if I couldn't do something slightly with the same ideals, possibly, without explaining that too much, but, but doing, communicating in a different way. And I haven't seen it. It's, it's been sparse in unionist politics, I think, to be honest. Um, the confident in self, so that's like my Northern Irish unionism, and not seeing myself as this uber British Anglophile or English nationalist. I think some people want to replicate English nationalism, and I'm like, no, no, you know, we're we're pretty unique here, Gareth. Well, that's that's why. Sorry, let Sam in a second, but you know, that what you said there leads on nicely to you know what happened in February at the meeting in Dromore. As you were saying, you know, you have to rep- if you're going to be comfortable in your own identity and who you are as a person, you have to be able to go into rooms where you might not agree with people, and and but also you're there to listen to the fears articulated by your constituents. So you've got a lot of spinning plates there, and I think it's really interesting. I, th- I thought the reaction, particularly from some other political parties, was very it was very negative, obviously, but you know, you were obviously doing something that you thought was of a benefit to the constituents that you represented. So can you elaborate a wee bit about that and how that sort of played out? Of course, yeah. So so in February, that was the start of the um, invitations to the the anti-protocol rallies. And at that stage, it was obviously in the middle of winter. It was dark nights and they were held in, in predominantly orange halls. And it was, I think it was the first one. It might have been the second, but I think it was the first. And so you you guys will both know this, but just for the record, um, the Austin News Party were uh, opposed to Brexit. And we articulated our views and being opposed to Brexit for reasons which are now being played out in the public square. We knew that Northern Ireland was going to have to be treated somewhat differently because of the nature we have. We would have a, a land border with the EU and so on. Um, so we knew who the, the rallies were being organised by. They were being organised by anti-protocol um, people, but they were also predominantly anti-Belfast Agreement uh, people. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, you know, you, could, you just knew where the energy was. So when, when I went to that, I know there's this, there was the platform piece which the four unionist leaders had done maybe about six weeks before to say we're all anti-protocol. But we've been absolutely clear from day dot, we're anti-protocol. We will, we, we want to see the protocol fixed, amended or replaced or gone. Um, and we've offered up solutions for that. But we want to do it whilst we're doing government. We, we don't want the people of Northern Ireland to suffer. There's, there's, there's lots of things going on. But obviously by February, there was an appetite um, from the anti-Group 5 Agreement people to use the protocol uh, rallies to reel against the Belfast Agreement. So I went into it. Um, obviously, you had the, uh, Kate Hoey and Ben Habib there, as well as Jim Allister and Jeffrey Donaldson. So the leaders of the, the, two, the, the two other unionist parties then, um, uh, 
those other two. Um, and the appetite in the room was, I mean, it was, it was incredible. I mean, it was, you could have literally touched it. The atmosphere was, you could smell it, feel it, touch it. It was, uh, is angry the right, well, it was, yeah, I would say angry was the word, raised voices. Um, and, and it was, you know, Jim Allister literally could have been carried out on a cloud because he was preaching to the converted. But the reason I went was to say something different. And it was simply to, at the start, say, I agree with you. The protocol's wrong, it's bad. I didn't stand up and say, but we told you. We went, that was pointless. I said, but I'm going to tell you, I have a different way of dealing with it. We have a different way of dealing with it. Um, and we believe that the solutions that we had offered, which were in the UK, uh, the British government command paper, and they're still there, and they're part of this protocol um, issue that you're driving through, will we'll come through. And we didn't want people to suffer. But then at the end of it, then the curveball came. And the curveball we knew was coming. So the last question is, do you think that the Belfast Agreement is still, you know, should still stand? And I mean, I said, I just said one word, yes. Jim Allister, who's always been against it, said no. Jeffrey couldn't answer it at that stage in February. Um, he, he, he talked for three or four minutes and he gave a, a, one of those polished politicians answers. He didn't die, still didn't answer it. You know, he didn't want to say no. He didn't want to say to 220 angry people, yes. But this is the flip side of it, guys. In the room, there was, you know, you, you knew where the, the uh, you knew where the real, the biggest part of the energy was. See, the next day, I got at least half a dozen messages from people in the room thanking me for offering a, a different view and being the moderate voice and, 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 and being sensible. Um, and then, as, as I said, there was other political parties picked up on it and used it for bad, you know, said I shouldn't have been there. How dare I be in Dremore? I mean, at, a, at an anti-protocol rally with these other people. I'm thinking, well, I don't agree with Kate Hoey and Ben Habib on, on, on a lot of things, or Jim and Jeffrey, but they're not they're not bad people, actually. And and But I wasn't there for them. I was there for 220 people from the Dremore and wider Dremore area. They're my constituents. So, so it was like, you know, there are certain people that want to sanitize one part of the discussion. And you know, and allow free reign on another part of the discussion, and and I and I I just don't get that. I mean, th those people who were deriding you for being in that room with people they didn't agree with, are the same people who want you in Stormont talking to people you don't agree with. I mean, sometimes the duplicity of these arguments that come forward is mind-boggling. You know, it's. Um, I mean, I come back to what you were saying about the, the, being a loyalist and and putting your hand up and saying it. I I do it now. Um, but I know what you're saying. For years, and shame maybe not the right word, but an uneasiness with that terminology because it had been given for so long that if you were a loyalist, you were this person, this criminal, this drug dealer, this thug. And it has taken me a bit of maturity and a, and a bit of life experience to, to be able to say that I am a loyalist because I believe that loyalism is working class unionist politics. It is left of centre. It is community based. Um... And that's why I'm a loyalist. And as, as I had an argument with somebody on Twitter a while ago, not all loyalists are in paramilitary organisations. We're we're a wider sort of berth than that. And the same, I would, as I said to Gareth before, I don't believe that all the paramilitaries on, on that side of the fence are loyalists either because they don't hold true loyalist principles. If they want to look at uh, the Mitchell principles and loyalism, half of them couldn't sign up to it. Half of them don't know what they are and they remain signing up to it. So... Um, I know what you're saying about about loyalism. It, it's it's one of those ones you need to go on a journey to find it, and when you do find it, you have to hold it dear. Because, and I I agree with you that there are certain people out there who sully the name, and that mm. that really irks me because they are sullying uh, they're sullying the people. Um, we are a community, um, and, and there's people out there who 
maybe maybe don't claim the name, but are given the name by the press, they're given the name by the way the wider media circles and demonized. Um oh, that's that's a that's a rant over. <laughs> but but going back to your 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 Moore experience, um that was the start of a pretty toxic time for the Austro Unionists coming into the election cycle. Um you had candidates being abused on online, you had offices being attacked. Why why did loyal why did loyalism and unionism turn in on itself at that point? Um Sinn Fein got through this election without firing a shot, I say. Uh, they had nobody attacking them, they had nobody challenging them, and they certainly didn't have to do any work for the seats that they won. We we seem to sort of implode. What's your reading on that, Robbie? Okay. Without getting like too sort of MI6 and stuff in this, I think that what happened was the issue of the protocol and the lack of awareness, uh, intent, sympathy or understanding with regard to the unionist um, problems and fears with the protocol allowed some of the people who are anti-Belfast agreement, so some people with a bit of age, shall we say, but not a big number, but a big following of younger people who don't have any concept of, of what it was like you know, during the troubles and stuff, um, to kind of agitate the base and, and point it and say, this is never going to be right um, and, and we're, we're being forgot about. So you, you talked about the media there and obviously there was a cartoon came up recently, the caricature of... of Loyalism. I took it a wee bit further in my mind. It's a it's a caricature of um, unionism, loyalism, and, and the Protestant culture in Northern Ireland. I, I believe that's where, where it to be. So you've got the you've got some aspects of um, political commentary. You've got the media all agitating towards a certain way. But then you've got those people out from other jurisdictions who have who have had severe influence here for many years, for good mostly, mostly whether that be from the EU or from America and so on, and everything seemed to be stacking up in a certain in a certain way. So if you remember last year, there was out, an outpouring of anger and it led to some trouble in the Shankill where there was a bus burn. Now at that time, I know that some of the community workers who are brilliant, absolutely salt of the earth people, stretched themselves to get people off the street, uh, put themselves in danger to calm the situation, and they did. But in the intervening period from then to now, I believe that they got absolutely tired, really tired, because they didn't see that there was any move towards that understanding. So if you can imagine, if you believe the political um, fraternity did not be cutting through, then you look at all those people with influence on the issue of the protocol who don't it look like didn't care, because what they were saying, and I make no apologies for saying this, they, they kept saying that, rigorous implementation of the protocol. I'm not just talking about local politicians, I'm talking about local politicians and those they had influence on, whether they were um, politicians in Westminster who, who support them or, or from the EU or from America. Um, and you could see that the people who were like the gatekeepers, Sam, as, as I would refer to them, were tired. Um, so therefore, the, the, there was a gap in the wall. And when you get a gap in the wall uh, and, and, and whatever, so they took, I think some people then stepped into that space the difficulty for me and my party and Doug was we have had talks with um, what well, we knew in the in the UK command paper that they'd got it. So this was this was a while ago. This is last year. We knew that they had at last cut through in London. So London was getting it. 
So we thought with the, the, when the UK command paper was published that that would give us some space and grace to get something delivered. But again, I think it was too slow. The reciprocation from the EU didn't happen until, until very recently. Um, and similarly with the Americans. Now, we met um, Richie Neal's delegation this week. Um, and behind closed doors, when you talk to them, there seems to be that understanding. The difficulty is it wasn't at the start of the week, it certainly was lost. The end of the week, you could, you could, you could detect that difference in tone. But we know this, guys. Unionism has done a really bad job of, of, of influencing anybody outside of Northern Ireland. Or unionism, actually, not even Northern Ireland. Sometimes they struggle to do it in Northern Ireland, you know, because it's it's that Alamo mentality. Uh, and in reality, when we were looking um, for the world to leave us alone, the world was expanding. And what what, what we should have been doing, what unionism should have been doing, is saying, "Well, we want to expand at the same rate. In fact, we want to do better. We've got we've got a you know we've got a vision for Northern Ireland. We've got a vision for this shared space, uh, and be more comfortable." I'll, I'll talk about this one because it's, it's it's slightly, and I hope you don't mind me for throwing this in as. I wish I could comfortably say I'm a loyalist. I also co- wish I could comfortably say I'm Irish, but I can't. I don't. You know, and and I and I, I, I there's only one one group and one group only that I blame for that, and that's the, the original IRA. Because my perception growing up, and I'm not from a I'm not from a family with like you know, I, I've always been a moderate, always, always. Um, and the mum and dad didn't teach any of us. I'm one of five kids. It's not one of us has a like a better bone. We're not sectarian in any way. But the reality for me growing up was travelling to see my grand and my granny and lying down in the back of the car driving through West Belfast because you were driving down, um, you're coming off the motorway, you were coming up the, the motor bypass, you're going down Bally Murphy and you're going up in the, and, and you were lying down. This is in the 70s, late 70s. I have memories of lying down in the back of the car, lie down, there's things happening tonight, we could get shot. Because my mum and dad, when we were visiting my grand up in Spring Martin, had been shot at. They weren't shooting at my mum and dad, they were just shooting up from Moyard up into Spring Martin, they were shooting back down, you know. Uh, and that's and, and and so for me that was that was the perception of what those who who wanted to be Irish were doing, you know. So therefore, I wasn't Irish, you know. I, as a, I've always been a Northern Irish, and there's people on all, all sides just struggle with that, you know. But I I don't. I I think that's I, for me, guys. That's where that's where we win at some stage. When you know, it, it is absolutely something we can share. Yeah, it's I mean, when you say about the the uh, sorry, go ahead, Sam. No, uh, go ahead. You go ahead. Go ahead. Just when you say about the Alamo mentality, there, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. The, the, I mean, I always think about because of where unionism situated, and because of where nationalism, republicanism situated. By its very nature, I suppose unionism. I mean, Ulster unionism, not unionism, UK unionism. Um, I suppose it's always on the defensive in a way, being the minority on the island, and you know, it's it probably gives less. It's probably less wriggle room to grow internationally. As you say, there's more potential for Republicans, nationalists to make friends internationally. And as you say, the world grew while the conflict was going on here. And Republicans were able to tap into that with South Africa, Palestine, la da da. Whereas unionism's always. I mean, I don't. I, I'm, you know, the parochial idea, where, do you, where is the wriggle room to progress? I mean, you talk about the Northern Irish identity there. And I think it's really important because when you go back to the, before the Troubles, there was, in the 1960s, there seemed to be a movement towards that people comfortably identifying as Northern Irish around the time that O'Neill was um, Prime Minister. So um, it's sad to think that, you know, 50, 60 years later, we're potentially back in the same situation where we haven't learned the lessons from the 60s where yeah. you have the ones shouting on the on the right or 
you know, in the margin saying, you're a Lundy, blah, blah, blah. You talk about the gap in the wall then, which I find really interesting, where mm-hmm. in the early 70s you had these sort of ego politicians, I would say, who weren't, who did, who wanted, basically they wanted to get rid of O'Neill originally in the 60s. And I see a similar pattern emerging now where, yeah, I mean, the gap in the wall idea is amazing. I had never really thought about that. But that gap in the wall is the nefarious elements then come in and we're on a hamster wheel again. And it, yeah. I think it's one of the things that really depresses me about Northern Ireland. I love Northern Ireland. I consider myself Northern Irish. But when will we break the cycle of, of not learning from the past? Ultimately, that's what I'm trying to get well, at. There's, there's, there's two, there's, I'll drop in a couple of wee things here if this is okay. So I'll give you, before I forget about it, uh, an example that might give you a wee bit of hope if you like. So I know, for instance, factually, with hand on heart, I get hundreds of Roman Catholic nationalist votes, first preference votes in this, but I just know I do. Um, it goes, where, and where does it come from? Well, one of it comes from a, uh, in the in the unionist loyalist area that I lived. It was, a, it was actually mixed, but it would have been, say, 80-20. It was a very comfortable place for everybody to live, I as, as I remember it. Now, some people might have slightly different memories and say, well, you always had a bonfire up there, but, but everybody went to them and, 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 and they were... They were uh, there were small bonfires, you know, they're genuinely like a disco type thing. Um, but apart from that, it was everybody got on well. I, you went to different schools and you literally didn't even, you didn't think about it. Um, and they were, uh, I worked in the butcher shop in Knockmore Knock- in Lisburn, which was a predominantly Catholic area, but maybe 60, 40 mix. And all of those families grew up there. And I know like two generations, say two generations, and they all know we Robbie the Butcher. And literally they will vote for we Robbie the Butcher or, you know, they'll th- say things like that when you, you know, when you meet them. And, and so, People would say, how can you prove that? Well, I'll give you two examples. I was out canvassing this year, and there was a new guy canvassing with me, and he said to me, um, I was telling him about what I've just told you. I know for, I know there are Roman Catholics, so he would probably be nationalist in their but don't vote for me first. And he says, well, I'm dead on. So we're out canvassing one night, and a guy said, Robbie, this guy over here wants to talk to you, so I'm going over to this guy's house. And I says, uh, how you doing, Mark? And he said, brilliant, Robbie. He says, will you come in for 20, 10 minutes? And I said, the guy, I'm going to go in here for 10 minutes. So I didn't see Mark and Mark sitting down chatting to me, asking about his family. And he, and he says, Robbie, you've got me, my wife, my brother, his ex-wife, my dad, my mom, blah, 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 all voting for you. And every single one of them, every single one of those guys is, is a Roman Catholic. Um, and uh, some of them are church, some of them aren't. They don't care. They, want, they, they, they just, they, they trust me. They don't care that I'm a unit. It's not that they're voting for me because I'm a unit. They don't care. They know that if they come to me or they need anything or whatever, I'm going to, I'm going to, bust my chops to, to, to get it for them. They know that I care about uh, Lisburn. They know I care about Lagan Valley and so on. I had RTE up with me. Uh, they wanted to go around and, and film us knocking doors and they were itching to get someone to answer a door to talk about the protocol. I didn't stage anything. I, I wouldn't do that. Couldn't get a door to answer. Actually, it was a Saturday. It was awful. And I said to them, I said, look, I'm like Abri here. Um, I'll, do you want, you'll want someone at the door. I said, I'll phone someone. So, there was a guy that I'd done some work for and I just knew looking at McGabry. So I phoned him and I said, Kevin, will you will you um, let me come around with TV crew? He said, yes. So we went to the door. So the, they were recording audio all the time. But Kevin says to me, look, Robbie, don't ask me about the protocol. Don't ask just, you because know, I don't know anything about the protocol. He says, just, he says, you know, I'm your man. And shook hands and there's two wee girls were standing out front. And then, so we were just walking away and the girl, the present, the girl who was filming it says, um, why would you vote for Robbie? And he said, well, he says, well, I know him, but he says he did my passport stuff for me. And she says, was it British or Irish passport? And he, he says, Irish passport. She says, why was it an Irish passport? And she say, he says, because I'm Irish. She said, I'm a nationalist. He says, but you're going to vote for Robbie Butler, Unionist? He says, of course I am. 
He's a man. He's a man in this room. Why would I not vote for him? Now, he was content for that to go out in RTE, and eventually, because he was, it didn't go out, literally. Um, they were on it a day or two before. It wouldn't have mattered anyway. To, you know, wouldn't have won me anything or lost me anything. But what, the reason I'm sharing with you guys is there are people out there um, who genuinely want to support the people that will do the best for them. In their heart, do they have a constitutional position? Yes. But I believe Northern Ireland offers us the position to be Irish, British, like firmly, firmly, absolutely as firmly, but Northern Irish together. So there has to be something we can share. So for me, um, like a United Ireland would just blow it completely out of the water. Because first of all, you you take, forget about your Britishness, you take my Northern Irishness off me. The place that I was born that I actually care most about, you've taken it away. And then I'm also looking at it now with the treatment of even moderate units like myself, when you put something out of a message, the, the, the barrage of abuse you get and you go, well, here, if that's what it's like now in Northern Ireland, uh, when, when we're not a burden on the Southern economy, you know, we're not, we're, you know, we're not trying to cut the, the pie up into even smaller slices. So, you, you know, I just, I, I just think it's, that, it's kind of that, that, that argument's being lost at the minute. I think they're winning. I think they're losing. And I'm happy for it to continue. I don't mind taking a bit of abuse, by the way, because what it does is it reinforces some of the things that I might have thought were my perceptions, misconceptions. They're now not being, they're not, I'm not being, I'm not, I now know that it wasn't, a, some of it wasn't a misconception. But here's the other bit, guys, sorry for rambling. That's okay. Do you think this is important? The extremes on both sides are small. I don't care what anybody says. The extremes in republicanism and the, the extremes in, in loyalism are small. And what I mean by that is those that would drift into the paramilitary stuff or the excessive stuff or the really heavy stuff, they're, they're small in number. Um, but what happens is we have a moment in time now, and Brexit was the example. Brexit was never a good idea. It wasn't a good idea for, for the UK, never mind Northern Ireland. But the, when you get an, an argument, which is change, we're in a time when a change is hard to stop because change sounds sexy, change sounds good. So who doesn't want to change? Because if you're not changing, you're not getting better. Things are always better. You know, things are always better. So, so see the argument of maintaining the union being Northern Ireland. Um, where where we've lost the beat is we're saying yeah, keep it as it is. But we should be saying no. We're going to reinvent ourselves. We're going to we're going to keep getting better. We're going to keep getting better, and it'll, you know, it's going to be a better place to live, regardless of where you come from, and it's going to be easier to be who you are. Strip the nationalities or the constitutional piece out of it, whether you're LGBT, whether you're straight, whether you have a faith, whether you don't. What is your faith? Northern Ireland should be this place where actually, because of what we've been through, it should be and could become the best place to be. You know, where where you can be strongly in your uh, priority, whether the, you know, whether that is faith or whether it's um, LGBT whether, or whatever it is. Um, and you'll be accepted. Not only that, you'll have the space to be. You know, uh, we're not there, guys, but that, that's the truth because lots of people are feeling the squeeze at the moment. But for me, that's what Northern Ireland could score because it is the best wee country in the world. Yeah. When, you, when, when you've been, when you've travelled, no, it sounds like a cliche. See, when you've travelled, tell you what, you, you can be glad to get back and you'd be glad to walk up, you know, Belfast or around Belfast. And um, I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. I was talking to a guy today, now he's a couple on the road here. Okay, talking to a guy today, and I talked about going up to Spring Martin to visit my granda. And this is about the mentality of all of us, okay? Spring Martin, bottom of Black Mountain, looking up at it and literally thinking as a child it's a dirty, yucky mountain. It's not a, a you know, Davis, Black Mountain, nothing nice about it. But then that was our mentality in the 70s and 80s and 90s because we were, every one of us had our head to the ground. You never looked up to see the beautiful buildings in Belfast because you had to get through gates to get into it and you're always afraid of something happening. 
But look at the walks up around Divis and Black Mountain now. It's an area of outstanding natural beauty. We didn't even know. Yeah. We didn't know. People, people just, who just had, had the thumb on us. Just, um, just to go back to your... The, always been there, sorry. Just to go back to your comments on on how, even as a moderate, you used to get attacked. I think over the last couple of weeks with cartoons, with um, comments being made, uh, uh, the triumphalism of of someone within the Republican movement is definitely letting the mask slip. Um, and they're doing themselves no favour. So the, the idea of a nice uh, new... Ireland, where all is welcome, is starting to look a bit more unwelcome for for those who didn't feel that uncomfortable. Um, and I think I think you're right in what you're saying about Northern Ireland could be the best. I think loyalism and unionism for so so long look at the negatives. We're busy attacking. We're busy. I mean, even our slogans: "No surrender." Um, no. Never, never, never. We're always using negative language. Nice. Yeah, smashing fan. Yeah. But we have so much positivity, we have so much to sell, and I think that's where we need to fall down. Um But on the back end of all this and all this positivity, I know Gareth is gonna bring this up anyway. The mental health crisis in Northern Ireland at the minute is not being helped with no government. Now you know because you know me, Robbie, that I'm not the greatest supporter of the Belfast Agreement at the minute. Uh, I haven't I haven't said that I think it's a bad idea. What I've said is that the, the way the system is working, I don't agree with. I think it needs to go back to its grassroots. I think the St. Andrews Agreement has totally bastardised it beyond, beyond workable. And I think we need to be looking at how we get back to where the spirit of the agreement was in 98 and, and the word of the agreement in 98. But in the meantime, I am also of the opinion that we need to have storming working because we have got a crisis. And I know mental health is something that you're very well read up on, uh, and it's a passion of yours. Is there anything that we can do at the minute to tackle mental health without Stormont, Stormont being in place? Yeah, I, I think I think there is, to be fair. So there's been a lot of um, good stuff has happened over this last few years. Some of it's been leveraged by government, but a lot of it has been grassroots, community and voluntary sector. And some of the, and, you know, social media is a cesspit at times, but it's also a fantastic place for the sharing of, of, of good stuff. Um, and, and and here's where the people, I'll go back to that analogy of filling the gap, standing in the gap, you know, being that man, being that woman that, you know, it's about what anybody of any influence and any desire to see real change here needs to be is, is validating those people and those things that are happening and don't getting sucked in. So if, to using it, just to go back to it very, very quickly, when that cartoon came up the other day, I did tweet about it, but what I tweeted on it was not the usual. Uh, uh, and if you read it, if you read it, you'd read it properly. I said, don't get angry. I said, don't get angry. See it for what it is. It's, it's, the, it's the lifting of the veil. See it as that and actually see it as a good thing because it's something that, you know, it's that conditioning that would be happening uh, that came out of Maze Longcash, that conditioning of staff, the conditioning of people. And it's happened in our communities, by the way, the conditioning of our people. It happens all the time. It's it's kind of, it's uh, you know, it's, it's like animal farm type stuff, but people are conditioned. So, so the so, but you do it and you do it the, the other way. You accept that we all like to be validated. Okay. So you validate the good stuff. You champion the good stuff. So at the moment, um, you've got the ministers in place. So the thing to remember is even though the, the top part of the executive isn't working, the health minister's there, for instance, okay? So the mental health strategy's there. So he's still pumping, trying to exercise money, get money into that to make sure it's funded. A big part of the mental health strategy is that co-production with the community and voluntary sector. And that's where the real 
benefit will be. So you've got the clinical stuff which happens in the hospitals. You've got that stuff that happens, you know, in the real clinical mental health. But actually, where the the, the big pressure in mental health is in the need for counselling and so on, and and a lot of that happens in the community. Um. So from from my perspective, from that sort of political level, I don't like put my hand up here and say it's like it's up here. But from that from that influential level, that's why I try and maintain that positivity, or. Or change the tone, change the words, change, and that's why I do the hope not fear piece. I mean, that's that was very deliberate. From I mean, Alliance did it yesterday in the chamber, and I was like, "Where do you get that from?" But here's <laughs> the thing: do you know? Do you, it's a real, it's a backhanded, it's a real compliment. Michelle O'Neill's used it. Um, they've all they've all used it because there's power in it, guys. Nay, it's easier to sell the negative stuff. So, um, but but you guys have a great platform. Both of you, people look at your stuff. And I'm only learning this about, you know, when you actually look at the on, underneath in Twitter, for instance. I, I was always looking, many likes and many shares and all that there, but that's not it. People are getting into your stuff, expanding it, then they're closing it and, 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 and absorbing it and moving on because they don't want to highlight uh, maybe someone else or you that they're on it. But actually, it's incredible the influence you can have. I mean, I, I, share, I shared something with you there um, about Devis and Black Mountain, okay? Earlier on today... I was in a conversation with somebody and I said something very similar. And the man beside me just happened to be one of the Belfast Hills partnership group. And it made his day. It absolutely made his day, right? Did I know he was standing there? No, I didn't. But was he validated by hearing that? Yes, he was. Um, so he's feeling good about what they do. You know, in a conversation that he was only on the periphery of, he got validated. He got, you know, so that's why even in off-the-cuff conversations and stuff, and, and you see when you make it a habit, guys, it becomes you. It's like, you know, the windows of the eye of the soul or whatever the man absorbs, that's, that's what he is. Again, too deep in the psychology and all that. But that's the truth. So yeah. people of influence validating the good stuff and, and continue to push it because we'd have, we still have a huge mental health problem here. We're still, and, 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 and I like to say this, well, I say I like to say it, but you may, I, I, it's only for people that I think to understand. So people are saying to me that the figures are getting worse. You know, well, the figures are getting worse because we're diagnosing it and we're talking about it. It's not necessarily that people are falling further into it. It's like when we started getting comfortable talking about cancer, the, the, the cancer rates went up, but it didn't actually. We got better at diagnosing it and people coming out and asking for help. And eventually you get to the top of that curve and then you go down. Um, and um, But Sam, see, to be honest, see, to really tackle mental health, we need an executive, we need a government because a lot of it is tied to where we would have started this conversation. Where is it? In working class communities. That's where it's worst. That's where it's more prevalent. Why is that? Because poverty resides there. Educational attainment gap resides there. Uh, uh, housing issues reside there. You know, all, uh, who, the validation of those people from people that shouldn't be validating them is there. You know, it's, it's, I think it's, at this point they say, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also just, it's the legacy of the troubles is there as well. That's one of the big things. Yeah. You're, you're 100% right intergenerational has passed on interestingly um, and, and to give um, the late Jim Dornan full credit for this I was at a, the, the trauma conference a number of years ago and he talked about so if we think of intergenerational trauma we think of that piece which is handed down through um, by being in the presence of a mum or a dad or, or, or a carer who and there's say they have issues or whatever you think it's that but actually it's much deeper than that so it goes into the uh, it goes into the so if you are um uh, so in terms of the reproductive system, so if you have if you have suffered abuse yourself, in in your nature, in your genes, in your in your sperm or in your egg or whatever, you know they're they're now looking at that lab, that granular level, 
of intergenerational. So it's not just the osmosis of the atmosphere, but it can also be hardwired in. But the good news is, and, and Sam will know where I get a bit of this from, from working with young kids, whether through fostering and so on. If you can get a young child early enough, you can make all the change in the world. It's not so. So it's not programmed to fail. It really isn't. People are not programmed to fail. You know. So so if you can get them in the right environment with the right support and the right network, there doesn't need to be the problems that there is. And that's where the political leadership comes back in as well, because. If you're looking at commu- communities that feel like that, you need good political leadership to bring people away from that legacy of the, the past. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's a uh, there's, there's also the, the moving people into that stage where they uh, aspire to be the best that they can be. And that doesn't, to caveat, by saying not everybody's going to be a rocket scientist and so on and so forth. They need to actually value... For instance, I never valued being a butcher. Garth never valued. I thought it was a, I thought it was a wet job. Genuinely did. It was just a butcher because it was working class, and that's what you did. You did to be jobs like that. Now I look back on it and think actually it was a brilliant job. You know, I think back and I go, I'd love to sit. I'd love a four quarter or a hind quarter here tonight to cut it up, and and do and manufacture it. You know, do the sausage. I'd lo- I would actually love to do that. But the best part was on the counter talking to people. Yeah, those skills are just. You know, you can't teach those skills. They, they just. You just do it, you know. Um, but there's a value to it, and it's about transmitting that value to young people coming through, so that they can aspire to say, "But well, that is good," you know. And I could be good at that. I could, and you can make a difference. Very, very quick one. Sorry, it's, this isn't going to be long enough, guys. It sounds like really small stuff, but one of the things that sticks with me, and we talked about mental health here, about where you can make a difference in people's lives. When uh, I worked in Knockmore, I was only seventeen at the time, and there was a wee lady who used to come into the butcher shop five days a week. She'd have bought. Four slices of corned beef on one day. She'd have bought one lamb chop and a, maybe two sausages the next day and a bit of fish on a Friday. I don't know why she bought fish on a Friday, Garth. Um, <laughs> I, feel, but, I, feel, I feel got that here. <laughs> she, um, but I remember, I remember she was a lovely, year, lovely lady, probably about 80, right? And I used to have a chat with her. And I said to her one day, have you got a freezer? And she said, I do. And I said, well, like, why, do you, why, don't you get, why don't you just get it all on a, on, on, on a Friday or a Tuesday? And I'll wrap it up and I'll make sure put it in the bags and label it. And she was as open as anything. She says, Robbie, I don't come over um, every day just to get this, the corned beef and the sauce. She says, I come over for a chat. We lady lived on her own. She had a nephew and a niece that she saw twice a year. And apart from that, her door probably didn't wrap. Now, at governmental level, we're working on a, a loneliness strategy. That woman I was talking to 33 years ago. And we're talking about a loneliness strategy today. And that, way, that woman told me when I said, I'm coming over. She, wasn't, she was coming over because she wanted the crack. And she was funny. She was brilliant, um, as, as, as some older ladies can be. I'll leave it there. She was brilliant. Really good crack. Um, but she, was, she told me, and I, that has stuck with me, that it was, she wanted the company. She wanted the crack. She wanted, you know, that was her socializing. That was her combating her loneliness. You know, so, and, and, and you know, it's just like a recalibration we need to do yeah and i think i think your argument there robbie is that we need to get back to everyday politics mm-hmm. we need to get back to, to, to doing the stuff that we should be doing we, we sometimes not sometimes let me rephrase that we always get dragged into these other arguments that oh, take up so yeah. much time and what we should be doing is, is looking at funding our health service and look at getting our educational standards up and looking at what we need to be doing for the people on the ground just to make it a bit easier i mean 
you, you deal with things that are high-level political strategy, a storm out, and there's still people who call you about the potholes on the roads. You know, there are so many levels to this, and we let it get sidetracked. I'm, I'm going to give you, a, 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 for instance, uh, I have a young family member who spent one weekend moving one of his friends into a hostel because he was made homeless and then attending the hospital the next night because another one tried to take his own life. And that's that's what that's what those kids are dealing with at the minute. And why is that? What, what have we done so wrong that that's what we're leaving behind us for our children to deal with? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, yeah. that's our failure. And I, I take that as well because I have been around enough to try and influence some change myself. And I'm looking at why is that, why is that young family member of mine having to do this with his time at the weekend instead of going to the cinema or going to the disco or, or spending time doing other things? Why is his friends in a situation at, at 18 thinking that A, one's homeless and B, the other one's trying to take their own life? I mean, what have we done as a society, as a people, to make that a reality for our kids? And too then, many ga- uh, there's too many gaps for them, yeah. Yeah, and with, and with uh, young people, both from both of your families, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not getting any better for them. I, I've, I'm witnessing it now, I'm, I'm going through it with that young family member of mine, but you guys have got this ahead of them as well. Um, what what are what are we going to do to give them hope that we're going to change it? Um, I think there's, there's lots of stuff to it, right? Lots of stuff. But I mean, I had a conversation with one of the um, uh, charity groups yesterday. Is relate and I, um, and it's not talking out of shop because I'm t- going to tell you what I said to them as opposed to what they said to me. They do some phenomenal work in around relationships and stuff, and you know, um, relationships are so important because. You know, all relationships can have their good moments and bad moments. But relationships, whatever way you, you, you leave them or maintain them is really important. And I think for a lot of our young people, there's there's relationship issues because they've maybe come from fractured relationships that they don't understand or, or they can't maintain relationships. And, and, uh, and um, But there's a problem particularly for men, for fellas. Um, and so it's... It, the world has probably been a, always been an easy place to be a man and a hard place to be a woman, but it's kind of moving. It's kind of some men are now struggling for what to say, what to do, and, and have certain fears. But the biggest one, um, and there were some studies done on this, is that it's the fear of not being anything, the fear of not ha- of not of not being valued and not having a value. So, I mean, when I was um, working in the fire service in uh, the early two thousands in, in Springfield Road, there was a there was a, a real um, Used the word spike, but there was a high number of young male suicides at that time. And all these young guys were between sort of sixteen and nineteen. I went to um, recover some of the bodies at times, and it's, you look at these guys, you're thinking that's a really good looking young fella. This is like, you know, well dressed, even you know, and you're thinking what what what's missing? Um, and I don't know any of the particular stories, but in some of the studies that have been done, um, it points at that, that some of these young fellas just didn't, perhaps maybe didn't have that significant male role model that they could that, that defined what they could be so perhaps um either the, the wrong person was there or there was nobody there right and then you've got all these all these other people validating you in different ways um but maybe they didn't see themselves as being um successful holding down a job where people would think it's good think anything of them think they had any value maybe struggle to think they could have a relationship or hold a relationship um, but it was the lack of value that, that I think, and, 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 and I'm trying to think of that as a politician to say, well, how, what strategies address that? You know, toxic masculinity, for instance, you know, if you're not the big, heavy fellow with the big muscles and you can knock people out and you've got tattoos coming out of everywhere. I mean, I'm five foot eight, 
light built, you know, mirror stick out a wee bit, you know, um, you know, I'm I'm not very. I, I, thankfully, I've been I've always been you know I've been in a family that says oh you're great anyway. So I grew up with that. But what if you weren't being told you were great anyway? What if you were told you're just a wee? Not to go to say the words, you know, but what if you all you had heard all your life was just who are you? What are you going to be? You know, you'll never be because it's self. It becomes self fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely. Um, that's right. But that's I mean everything starts in the home, doesn't it? Really. Yeah. It's, it's, so, 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 yeah. So, I mean, for me, I'll give you a whistle-stop tour of how I see tackling education under achievement, mental health, and so on. I want to see um, when uh, women are pregnant, that the help going in straight away. So, the the, the, the uh, Department of Health, the, the health visitor is already going in. Not just to look at mum, look at mum's mental health, look after the baby. But what's the house like? Is there poverty there? Is there evidence of of uh, too much alcohol? Is it, is, is the dad healthy? Is whatever, and not to control it. Speak in advice, but also start to flag for that wee baby coming, because all of those things affect the baby. Okay, just start flagging it. You cannot. I'm not advocating controlling anybody's life. I'm just talking about data here. So when that wee baby comes out, if another health visitor comes on, you get this on this system, and there's a couple of wee flags on a green flag, green flag, green flag, red flag. What does the red flag mean? There's a bit of alcohol in the house during pregnancy. Don't know if it means anything, but have you know, watch out for it. Um, uh, stable relationship. Good dad, whatever, 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 but sometimes not. Um, and then as, as that child develops, when you, the, the public health nurses then record all this stuff, instead of doing it on paper, instead of it being in a folder somewhere, it's on this like an iPad that follows every child, right? Is the, is, is the child from a house with poverty, you, you mark it. Can we do anything about it? Is there anything we can do? Um, and then when you you know when your child goes into nursery school, the nursery school will be able to hit, hit a button, and, and the information that they're entitled to see, they will say if there are any developmental delays. They don't have to interview mum or dad or anything because guess what? We already know because we we do already know. Um, and then there'll be no delays. You don't have to wait on the assessment because it's already been flagged and it's already in the system. So this is about that cross departmental bit where all the health information talks to the communities. If it's a social need, if it's an educational need. It's filtered in for those guys to be flagged and, and, and see it. And you track that through even with their education. So instead of having multiple books and multiple systems, you have their education uh, challenges, achievements or whatever on that. And then by the time you get to age 11, you don't have to do a high stakes transfer test because you know what that child's going to be good at. You know, you, you, you've sort of mapped it out and then you say, this is the best school for you. So you're not worrying about this high, high stakes test and so on. Um, but I, I think... You do that, but you willfully support and offer help to those that will take the help when you see it as well. Because um, I think I think there's more than enough money in the budget to do that. I think it's about system, you know, better use of the systems, better use of the the data uh, and information. But then you, you have to build in that trust with the with, with the people. You know, you have to. So if you look at what's happening in New Zealand with uh, Jacinda Ardern, she has got this this, this program for government which is all about well being. Does everybody trust her? No, but most of them do. I mean, that's that's a a a. a, a Prime Minister with unparalleled access to public confidence, and 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 that's what, which hopefully will happen here at some stage. We will have a you can smile. We've never had anything like it. But if you can imagine, if you've got those policymakers and 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 the political speak and the political tone is making you have confidence in what they're doing, the game changer for all of those things: tackling poverty, mental health uh, outcomes for 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 young people, suicide, all of those things. And I think your idea is spot on, um, but, but we need to make sure that we don't stigmatise those young parents, 
that we're going in and flagging against because it's maybe not it's maybe not their fault. It's inherent in them as well, considering the upbringing that they've had and and this the scholarship that they've had from their own parents. I mean, this is intergenerational. I've seen it myself. That sometimes families self replicate each level they go down because they don't have the basis. You don't have that role model, as you were saying, of being how to be a good dad, how to be a good mom, what is a stable family, what is a good dad. And and what I think those families are frightened of sometimes is is a social worker coming in and taking their kids and that's it, or stigmatizing them. You're a bad mother. You're you're 100%, Sam. You're absolutely 100% because, um, I mean, I I feel I absolutely adore social workers because I've worked with them for so much. And, And I know that to be a real, you know, in children's services, it's hard to get people to go in and do social it's hard to recruit now for social workers for children's services because it's so tough because we have a we have a we we, we have a place in Northern Ireland where if a social worker is going to your house it's a bad thing well actually it's not but it's perceived with oh, the socials coming around you know the social workers coming so the perception of them being there to help has been lost because they're there to, to, to check up on you when it, when in essence they're part of the health and social care system so the health and social care system exists to keep you healthy and make you better when you're when you're ill, um, and 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 we know that sometimes, especially in our mental health, if you have a need, it's the hardest place to ask for help from. So there's a recalibration again of I mean, it's, 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 I, I, I know I'm probably painted as a, as a simple thing, but it's a massive change. The technology is not the problem, and I don't even think the money's the problem. It's the trust and the understanding of what what it, what it is. Because I I can imagine the fear of people that are coming in the stoop. They're coming in to see if I've got a TV license. They're coming in to see, uh, you know, to check on what we're eating. They're coming in to, to, to judge me because we're in a world full of judgment. And in essence, how can you, you know, if, that's why you need that validity at the top. That's why you need, I think, genuinely the political leadership to be, I, I trust that person to actually want to transform the lives of everybody here um, because we're naturally suspicious, people like. And I think we're coming up to roughly an hour, and I know your time is precious, so I'll let Gareth ask the final, the final piece before we close up shop. Um, well, I suppose the logical question is, you know, will there be an executive again, and what what does the future hold for Northern Ireland? I mean, not to finish on a, a, a difficult question, but we constantly <laughs> <laughs> we constantly hear about these, um, you know, um, conversations about New Ireland and this that, and the other. But you're obviously a very confident unionist. You've articulated that tonight. So what does the future hold for Northern Ireland? How can we get back on track so we can talk about those bread and butter issues that we need to? Okay. Um, so I think uh, my, my my firm belief this evening, <laughs> this evening, this evening is that the, the, the protocol will be sorted. The, the first problem within the protocol will be sorted fairly soon. Um, so I, I uh, and I think uh, it will be the... the British government will lodge the legislation. Never, you know, people talk about it being um, a unilateral move. Well, it's only a unilateral move if they used it. You can have legislation and never use it. Um, so the, the use of it would be two years down the line. It would be a year before it actually comes in and it gets royal assent and so on. But I think what we'll see in this next week or so is that they delay the legislation. The DUP will make a graduated response and they'll, they'll um, nominate a speaker. And then um, hopefully... If there's a second reading of the legislation, that might be enough of a graduated response to see them nominate uh, for Deputy First Minister. That being the case, 
the first element of my strategy, my vision will happen because we'll start to talk about strategy. I want to see, for instance, you'll see in this next five years, and you can hold me to account in this if it doesn't happen. Um, so there's a disability strategy that will come out, but I'm not sure that it's going to be ambitious enough. I want to see, I think the most marginalized community in Northern Ireland is the disabled. I don't think they're, it's Protestant and Catholic. I don't think it is um, a faith or a not faith. I think it's a disabled community. I think they're the most, um, uh, they have the, the, the most barriers to access to everything. So I'd like to see us become the most compassionate. So if we can, if we can get, if we can do something like that in a mandate, right, and give the electorate the confidence to stop doing what they're doing, which is voting for Sinn Féin and DUP in the big numbers. Because I believe that even though DUP got about 190, Sinn Féin got 250, I think their core vote for both of them is in around 100,000. I think that's what it is. We're down there, core vote. I get that. I think most parties are sitting in around the core vote. I reckon there's 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 100,000 persuadables on both sides there for, for someone to step up and in into that space and say... Guys, we've all got it. We're right over here, right over here. But here's where the truth lies. It's right when we go when we do that. And the truth for me is in the Northern Irish identity and the ability through the Good Friday Agreement to be Irish, British, neither, other, both. I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, that's the protocol happening right there. Don't say the protocol because the protocol's getting changed, right? We'll call it something else. But but therein lies the beauty of, of, of me and Sam slightly disagreeing this because Sam's a little bit shaky on it. The Good Friday Agreement. We just have to recalibrate and remember where we were. And what happened? What change actually happened? So, for me, it's for unionism to getting getting beyond the point of the Alamos we talked about earlier on, and not looking saying we're not going to change. It's about saying actually we are going to change, and here's where, where we see the change. This is how we see it, um, and and something for everybody. And that's where I am, Gareth, in terms of my politics. It was the Ulster Unionist Party for me, um, not because I grew up knowing Ulster Unionist, but because that was the party that I saw as the moderate voice of unionism. But I want to see it not being described as the moderate voice of unionism. I want to see it described as the visionary voice of unionism. But see the union of people stuff that Doug's talking about? That's it. It doesn't need... Listen, that's it. It's the union of people. Uh, and when we say the union of people, we get it right here in Northern Ireland. And you see everybody else will want to be part of us. They'll actually be wanting to join us. You know what I mean? They'll be saying, I want a slice of that. Literally. I mean, I, I, I want to see this place the envy of these islands. Yeah, because I'm 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 fifty. I want to I want I want to live for fifty years, another fifty years, and I want this place in that time, not for the next generation. I want to see it in my time, you know. So, well, thank you, Robbie. No problem, guys. Thank you very much for taking the time to come and speak to us. It went far too quick. <laughs> it's really it, yeah. it does, and I, I probably I would probably go out in the limb here and say we'll have you on again at another point because there's there's so many other subjects that we could cover. Um, that I think we need to because as, as we're trying to do with this podcast we got to show that loyalism isn't black and white it is a multitude of colours in there and we're a broad church of ideas and ideologies and beliefs and structure and I think people need to see us for that um, yeah, Sam, we, did, we, talking, didn't talk about, we didn't talk about flags once no, <laughs> uh, there'd be a reason for that <laughs> um, yeah but then, I mean, I, I'm confident enough in my Britishness and my in my political beliefs that I don't need to walk behind a band and I don't need to fly a flag. Um, but I don't deride anybody else's desire to do so. Um, yeah. I'm quite happy to, to know that every day that I walk out, I, I am who I am and, and that's it. But it's taken a while to get to that stage. And I know others celebrate that identity in a different way. And I'm quite happy that to support that because I'll support anybody who wants to celebrate their identity without attacking somebody else. You don't yeah. need to do that. No, no. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you. And I think, thank you I think so much. we've taken up enough of your time. So if you can go back to sorting out the country again and the pothole at the front of my <laughs> road here is getting a bit deeper. Thank you very thank much, you. Robbie. Cheers, guys. God bless. Thanks, Bye. Robbie. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening and please do subscribe, rate and review on your podcast app. It helps people find us. Shrapnel is part of the Tortoise Shack Network, an independent platform that relies on listeners. For much more content like this, join us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. Thanks for listening.